justliberty.org. It's good for you and it's good for me. Justliberty.org. Justliberty.org. Hi, I'm Amanda Marzullo. Police and EMS responded recently after Lufkin man accidentally shot himself in the buttocks. So Scott, what explains this guy's poor aim? For the hundredth time, I have no explanation. And I apologize in advance for doing this show standing up. <laughs> well, well, I appreciate the explanation and the apology, but that's not responsive to my question. Uh, okay, fair enough. Now, it actually is a funny story. This guy was putting a loaded handgun for, for personal safety reasons, <laughs> of course, in between his box springs and mattress. As one does. As one does, yes. And it turned out the box springs were a little on the old side. A spring punched through, hit the trigger (laughs) of the gun, and shot off part of his ass. So, (laughs) really a classic Texas tale in many ways. (laughs) Oh, God, that was a bad pun, Scott. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the March 2018 edition of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm Scott Henson, Posse Director at Just Liberty, here today with our good friend Amanda Marzula, whose day job is Executive Director at the Texas Defender Service. Mandy, what are you looking forward to on the podcast today? Talking about the recent primary results. Me too. First up, though, an appellate court overturned a sex offender conviction because Tarrant County Trial Court Judge George Gallagher ordered him electrocuted three times with a stun belt outside the presence of the jury. The 8th Court of Appeals ruled that Gallagher shocked the defendant, quote, not for legitimate security purposes, but solely as a show of the court's power as the defendant asked the court to stop torturing him. Complaints have been filed Mm. against the judge with the State Commission on Judicial Conduct as a result. So, Mandy, what do you think of this shocking judicial (laughs) development and what should happen here? (laughs) You just can't stop today, I can't stop. Okay. Um, Well, I I hope that... This issue gets a serious inquiry in terms of what should happen next. What is sort of sad about this, or particularly sad about this incident, is that it's not as rare as I think many people think. I wouldn't say it's a pervasive practice amongst judges, but it's certainly not an isolated one. We've seen it in other courts. You know, a little over a year ago, um, there was a case out of Smith County where a defendant was sentenced to death after representing himself. And the trial court did shock him there. It wasn't in the presence of the jury, but the jury was in the hallway and could hear it. So I think this is a practice that may require further examination. And the stun belts are a a really odd device anyway, when you think about it. That's an odd thing to think that you have to do. If you're that afraid that someone is going to attack you, then cuff them. And um, supposedly the reasoning is that you can't see it underneath the table or whatever, but it, it's an odd practice to begin with. Yeah, and the, and the bailiffs are nearby. It's 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 hard to imagine the circumstances under which the judge is or anyone in the courtroom is really in right. danger. The the Tarrant County District Attorney in their brief to the Court of Appeals had suggested that there was a 200-pound smart board, I'm not sure what that was, but some piece of computer equipment that was five to seven feet away, and and the defendant could have picked it up and threatened lawyers with it, but it was all so unlikely and weird um, <laughs> that they would even propose that. And obviously the court didn't think that was a reasonable interpretation and, and didn't, didn't side with that. Wow. Strange case. Yes. 
Next up, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals ruled that portions of the consolidated court costs relating to law enforcement officers' standards and education, comprehensive rehabilitation, and the abused children's counseling fund were all facially unconstitutional and it could no longer be collected. The ruling adds another notch to the gun belt of former GOP CCA candidate Janie Massielli Wood, an attorney at the Harris County Public Defender Office, who has been challenging unconstitutional fees, which use the courts as revenue generators. So, Scott, what are the implications of eliminating these fees? Well, there's implications on a couple of different levels, actually. For starters, just at the level of the fees themselves, once they go away, those programs become unfunded, whether it's the rehabilitation, whether it's abuse children's counseling. This is how we fund those programs, and the legislature has not created alternative funding streams yet. That'll be something they're going to have to come back and revisit in 2019, if not before. And the bigger picture of this is also that we in Texas have not really raised taxes significantly on any level for many decades now. And mm-hmm. and we have chosen to f- instead fund government through fees and fines and-, and surcharges and court costs and everything under the sun to avoid having to raise taxes. Well, in doing so, it turns out the state has engaged in overreach and has actually, in this case, assigned court costs that are unconstitutional, that they had no authority to assess, where they reached further to and are using some of these for just general revenue funding, really, instead of it being to, to fund the specific programs that they're citing. And so the courts are now saying, no, you can't do that. You can't collect those fees if you're not using them for criminal justice purposes. And this has implications going forward in a state where we're not really willing to pay for things through taxes. Next up, let's update our coverage of district attorney and court of criminal appeals races in the March 6th primaries. Texas's primary elections were held on March 6, and six of the 12 elected district attorneys facing challenges were defeated. Of particular note, voters ousted DAs Nico LaHood in San Antonio, Abel Reina in Waco, and Steve Tyler in Victoria, based on campaigns against prosecutorial overreach. And in Dallas, Judge John Crusoe won a tight Democratic primary against a candidate backed by national-level progressive reformers. Meanwhile, presiding Judge Sharon Keller narrowly won re-election to the Court of Criminal Appeals with just 52% of the vote. And in a race to replace Elsa Alcala, who is retiring, GOP voters selected Judge Michelle Slaughter of Galveston, a civil lawyer with backing from the pro-life and guns wing of the GOP base, who defeated two criminal justice veterans with decades of experience. The Texas Tribune reported that she was, quote, the only one of the three without a criminal appellate background, having worked in civil law before becoming a judge. So Scott... Which of these primary races stood out to you, and what should we take from this round of elections? Well, I guess as far as standing out, the ones that I enjoyed the most were Abel Renya and Nicola Hood going down. I thought both of those were pretty Mm well-deserved. Abel Renya in Waco in particular really had just kind of made that county a laughingstock over the whole Twin Peaks biker shooting case Mm -hmm. and 
they will be paying for the aftermath of that case for years and years to come in civil suits and and really just the chaos it's created in the court system there is is almost unprecedented and uh, Nikola Hood, of course, had alienated just about everybody he could think of before the voters finally ousted him. And then also, I guess it's just impressive overall that there were 12 DAs statewide that mm-hmm. had contested primaries, six of them overall lost. So we are in a period where those are not just safe incumbent seats automatically. People are, are losing those. And we saw several people taken down this time that I think wouldn't necessarily have been expected just a year or two ago. People thought Abel, Abel Renya was pretty safe until all the Twin Peaks stuff just utterly devolved. And all of a sudden, he's gone. Yeah, well, in fairness, the Twin Peaks case is a big deal. It wasn't just a small issue here and there. We're talking about dozens and dozens of people being incarcerated and no convictions, you know, two or three years later. That's right. That's right. He basically just screwed that case up in every way you possibly could. And now they're all falling apart. He can't get the attorney general to take them there. No one really knows how this is going to all play out because nothing quite this stupid has ever been done before. (laughs) On this magnitude. (laughs) That's right. This is is a little bit of a deal. We're not talking about a small thing. We're talking about hundreds of people. That's right. That's right. Being rounded up. In terms of races that I'm looking at, I'm particularly interested to see what will become of Michelle Slaughter because she really is an unknown entity. Um, there's no history for us to go off of. It's hard to know where she'll be. We were talking about it earlier, and I think you're right, Scott, that given her endorsements and her sort of political leanings, it could be that she is moderate on criminal justice issues. Right. A lot of Tea Party type folks are it's, it's really hard to hard to say it is disappointing i guess that it seems to be really hard for qualified candidates to get through the gop primaries in these open races we had the same situation in 2016 where the folks who on their face had overwhelmingly the best qualifications the two candidates couldn't even make the runoff in the race to, to replace kathy cochran and here now the one civil attorney defeating these two men with Decades and decades of experience. I happen to prefer Jay Brandon over Dib Waldrop um, mm-hmm. in that primary, but but either man actually is eminently qualified for the spot, and GOP voters don't seem to care about that. That doesn't mean Michelle Slaughter won't be a good judge. Nobody really knew who Scott Walker was when he was elected. He didn't even run a campaign. He was elected because voters thought that he had he had the same name as the very popular governor of Wisconsin. Yeah. And so they pulled the lever for him. He turned out to be a fine judge. And so that doesn't mean that Michelle Slaughter is not going to be a good judge once she gets on. It just means that qualifications don't mean much to GOP primary voters in these judicial races. They just don't. And and this is two primary cycles in a row that we've seen that to be the case. Democratic primary for district attorney in Dallas turned into a debate over which candidate would be the more progressive prosecutor, a dynamic made even more odd by the fact that the candidates' positions on issues were essentially identical and overall quite moderate. By contrast, Philadelphia recently elected a man named Larry Krasner, district attorney, 
and he's launched sweeping changes in how prosecutors use their discretion, which go far beyond anything undertaken by Texas so-called progressive prosecutors like Kim Ogg in Houston or Mark Gonzalez in Corpus Christi. He issued a memo telling his assistants, DA, assistant DAs to decline cases for low-level pot possession and paraphernalia and offering plea bargains at the low end of their state sentencing guidelines as an opening offer. Just as important, Krasner directed prosecutors to describe the benefits of lower sentences on the record, including how much cost savings taxpayers will incur. So, Mandy, do any current Texas DAs or DA candidates deserve the mantle progressive when compared to Larry Krasner? And how would you describe the distinction between his approach and prosecutors in Texas? <laughs> well, sir, this is easy. No, I don't think we have a single DA in office that comes anywhere near Larry Krasner in terms of his progressive policies. Um, and it's because in Texas, we see prosecutors, you know, tweaking their use of the prosecutorial power. You know, they'll divert more cases. They'll not contest bail in certain circumstances, but we're not seeing anyone in Texas trying to use their authority as a prosecutor to challenge mass incarceration. And that's really where Larry is going with this is he's not only, you know, declining to prosecute some really, I guess, like sort of crimes of poverty in a lot of ways like prostitution. But he's also starting a dialogue about the utility and the public investment in incarcerating people. That's right. And he's also really furthering the dialogue that's begun in the past couple of years about prosecutors' role in mass incarceration. We've heard a, a lot of the, and this is partially why you saw so much national money put into the races and against Nicola Hood and mm -hmm. and the primary in Dallas is that there there is this sense that prosecutors are central to mass incarceration, so we have to start playing in that terrain. The problem has been nobody really had a model of what can a prosecutor do to reduce incarceration. And certainly none of our so-called progressive DAs in Texas or DA candidates have really even had any kind of plan to reduce mm -hmm. mass incarceration whatsoever. It wasn't even something that they were pretending to be putting forward. And there wasn't a benchmark out there to say, mm -hmm. okay, here's what could be done if someone really wanted to try. Well, now we do. I found myself wishing that this memo had come out maybe just a couple of months or three months ago so that, and I know he just got in, yeah. but so that in this Dallas DA race, where somehow this one candidate's more progressive than the other, but they both have the same positions. Well, I would have loved to see them be asked, well, are you going to do these things? Are you going to use your discretion mm -hmm. to offer plea bargains at lower lower levels and, and describe in detail how you're going to do that? We didn't have a framework to be even asking those questions. And from now on, we will. So yeah. I, in that sense, he's you know, it's, it done a great mitzvah that it's a great benefit just from that perspective alone, moving that dialogue forward. primaries, Just Liberty supporters flock to their precinct conventions to support platform planks related to criminal justice reform in both political parties. The Young Republican Federation of Texas endorsed all 16 of the proposed improvements to the party platform, including requiring a warrant to access cell phone location data, 
closing large youth prisons and reducing user level drug possession penalties from a felony to a misdemeanor. Last Saturday, the resolutions were approved at multiple Senate district conventions in both parties, which make recommendations that the state conventions may approve in June. Just Liberty created a little jingle to support the campaign. Let's give it a listen. Justice is blind, her hands are full, holding a sword and scales. She has no time for politics, that's why her foes prevail. Today, justice is threatened beyond a reasonable doubt. So why not help an old blind lady out? Justice needs a platform, justice needs a platform. Free da dee da dee do da dee dum Justice needs a platform. Justice needs a platform. So, Scott, how has Just Liberty's campaign gone so far? Considering this was sort of a new idea and most Just Liberty supporters had never participated in these processes, I thought we did pretty well. We got resolutions passed in five Republican Senate districts and 15 Democratic Senate districts. And most of the Democratic districts actually passed all 16 of the resolutions that we proposed. The counties that passed the most on the Republican side were in Williamson and Tarrant, where we had uh, resolutions on cell phone privacy, on the driver responsibility program, on the militarization of police, on civil penalties for marijuana, on raise the age and closing youth prisons, all passed in many of these counties. So this was a a big success. It was the first time we'd ever tried such a thing. And now it's on to the state party conventions in June. And we'll see how many of them we can get into the final party platforms. Congratulations. I'm looking forward to watching what happens. Thank you. It's been fun. February, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals handed down a ruling which upheld Judge Lee Rothensall's finding that Harris County bail and pretrial detention practices were unconstitutional. They also upheld most of the remedies Judge Rosenthal had required with one major exception. The court increased the amount of time defendants can be held without setting bond from 24 to 48 hours under Judge Rosenthal's ruling. Scott caught up recently with Suzanne Pringle from the Texas Fair Defense Project, which initiated the Harris County lawsuit, along with Civil Rights Court and Sussman Godfrey, a private Houston-based firm. Before Scott and I discuss the case, let's listen to what she has to say. All right, Suzanne, tell us what happened in the litigation. Who won, who lost, and, and describe the outcome for us. So at this point, the Fifth Circuit recently largely upheld the district court ruling, which was that the Harris County bail system, as it stood, was unconstitutional. Um, the Fifth Circuit did say that they want the district court to issue an injunction that allows for 48 hours before release as opposed to 24 hours, um, and that the injunction was perhaps wider um, than it should have been. At this point, the injunction is still in place until the district court can issue a revised injunction. In the meantime, both sides have filed motions for rehearing. The plaintiffs on a very minor issue, which is that the other loss is that the Fifth Circuit did dismiss the sheriff, the Harris County sheriff, as a defendant. Now, 
the Harris County Sheriff had actually not appealed the lower court's ruling and so was not actually at issue in the case. But while all of that is going on and while the Fifth Circuit is deciding what they're going to do, the injunction that the district court issued is still in place. And so what is Harris County doing on the ground now in reaction to this? Because So since July of last year, there have been lawyers at every bail hearing. They are doing individualized hearings in Harris County. And if they are unable to get someone in front of a magistrate for a hearing, um, they have to release them in, within 24 hours. That That is not true for a few types of cases like domestic violence cases or other situations where it may be appropriate to hold someone for longer. Um, but they're releasing people on bonds that they can afford. They're actually asking, the magistrates are actually asking questions about what a defendant can afford, and they're actually reviewing um, what the lawyer tells them about what someone can afford. So Harris is not the only county in Texas that is holding people on bail when they can't afford it. In Dallas, there's litigation that's been begun that's sort of similar on a parallel track, but then there's 252 other counties where nothing's necessarily going on. What does this mean for the rest of the state? Um, what are you seeing in some of those other counties? How are people reacting to this? And, and if this is going to change how bail is done in Texas, sort of describe how that's going to occur. So what this means for all the other counties is that business as usual is no longer true. They can no longer continue to hold people on bail based on a bond schedule without an individualized hearing um, and without considering what the defendant can actually pay and whether or not they're actually a risk to not appear or a risk for public safety. What we are seeing in counties across the state, you know, there are counties like uh, Nueces County, which is putting in place risk assessment tools and really making an effort to release everybody that can be released um, on personal bond or on low-cost bonds. Bear County recently um, rejected their bond schedule and no longer uses a bond schedule, which you know, leaves room for more individualized determinations. Um, I think you're going to see more counties um, putting lawyers at bail hearings when they can find the money to pay for that. And that is a way to make sure that folks are going to be heard when defendants um, appear in front of a magistrate at a bail hearing. So you're, you're going to see more people, uh, pardon, more counties are going to use risk assessment tools. At this point, the Office of Court Administration has um, automated a risk assessment tool, and they are beta testing it with counties. So soon I think that'll be available to counties across the state. And I know that the Office of Court Administration has heard from lots of counties that they want to use a risk assessment tool and they want to shift towards a risk-based release model rather than a money-based detention system. That's great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. So what strikes me as one big takeaway from this is how much time did the Harris County Judiciary waste in fighting this case? They spent more than $5 million <laughs> uh, fighting this, and they just lost really almost completely across the board. The only thing they won, pushing it back to 48 from 24, was really a very minor victory. If you told them that was all they'd get for their $5 million, no one would have done it. And so... Those judges engaged in so much hubris throughout this. They, they wasted so much taxpayers' money. It turns out that they were misleading the court about how they were setting these bonds. They had insisted to the court that they had no involvement in, in those magistrate decisions. And then when the magistrates faced complaints at the State Commission on Judicial Conduct, 
They turned around and said, no, we were ordered by these judges and gave proof, written proof that these judges had actually ordered them to, to use these bail schedules in complete, uh, completely contrary to what they had told the federal court before. And so they have basically gotten themselves in trouble, maybe even with the state commission. They have, uh, and certainly got, they got their magistrates in trouble. They have wasted $5 million. They're still having to implement all the changes. Why did we have this fight? Mm-hmm. What did they hope to gain? It's, it's such a waste, and, and this all should have been resolved a couple of years ago. Yeah, no, it's, it's unfortunate. So finally, two local attorneys have sent a demand letter to six Travis County Court of Law judges who oversee misdemeanor courts over their so-called jail reduction docket for misdemeanor cases. At these hearings, defendants would be herded in en masse, and attorneys would meet their indigent clients for the first time in the courtroom, dressed in orange, sitting next to other inmates on a bench. There, they discuss the case for a very short period of time, and then, more often than not, plea the client to time served. Twenty years ago, when I first witnessed this this practice in Travis County, they called it the rocket docket, but apparently that's no longer considered politically correct, and we may now get to find out whether it's legally correct. So, Mandy, why is this case important and what are its prospects? Well, I think we're missing a lot of key information here about Travis County's policies surrounding indigent defense and access to counsel. The issue really is that this is a plea mill, that defendants are being sort of corralled, it seems, into a courtroom and meeting with their attorneys for the first time and not really getting meaningful advice about their case, right? Because the lawyer hasn't had time to review anything regarding No way to investigate. Really nothing you can do. Yeah, nothing. So other in other jurisdictions, like in Tarrant County, you know, a lawyer is appointed in well in advance of these sort of jail calls where they're they're handed the discovery, they're appointed, they're required to review those documents so that when they come into the room at the jail docket, they can give meaningful advice to their client. And I I'm not sure why that isn't happening in Travis County, but that's that's what you'd like to see, because in theory, it probably does make sense to have someone who is being held without a conviction to have some sort of judicial review of their case quickly after their arrest. Right. Well, my feeling, frankly, has always been that the reason they do it is to maximize pressure on the defendant to plea. Yeah. I think that that, you know, when you hand the lawyer the file, literally the court clerk hands them the file and then they turn around and meet the defendant the first time, that they have few options. Yeah. They have no, very few options. And I, I think that's actually my opinion is that's probably the point. It always seemed like it was the point. They called it a rocket docket for a reason. They wanted to plea and boom, boom, boom. And that's what they get. And the idea that somehow they intended something different always seemed very spurious to me they intended what they're doing <laughs> that's why they're doing it and <laughs> I mean, probably i mean the other thing is, is that they put you know people probably mean a lot of different things all at the same time right like you know, i mean i'm the optimist between the two of us so um i, I you know i'm not sure i want to like, like assign that type of malign intent but it's definitely the outcome right and regardless of what they're meaning the, the poor defendants in this situation have very few 
options and they clearly aren't getting meaningful representation. That's right. And I guess it's just because it's been going on that a, a quarter century, to my knowledge, that at some point what their intent is to me doesn't matter anymore. At some point, whether or not you intend to deprive people of their rights after you've just been doing it for year after year after year, what do I really care what your intent is anymore? But, what does anyone care? Why don't you just <laughs> shut up and do what you're supposed to do? Well, that's the thing, though, is that I think for them is that they don't have contacts or the people who work for the court administration. They probably have no idea. They're, in many ways, they're probably blind to it because, you know, injustice like this becomes normalized. That's right. But there's. There's a judge sitting there, too. It's not just the court bureaucrats. <laughs> For them, too. I mean, they are the, the ultimate court bureaucrats. Right. Well, I, I guess that's true. But I, I guess we can pretend that, that everybody had good intent and, <laughs> you know, wanted nothing but, but rainbows and unicorns and snowflakes. For everyone, I'm not saying that we all need to hold hands. Kumbaya, baby. But (laughs) but you know, I get when it's just happened for this long, and it's just hard for me to really accept that anymore. And and you're right, we don't know a lot about the litigation yet. It's really just a demand letter, not really litigation. But it's it's hard to know what the right remedy is, right? Is it that there's something, there are some perverse incentives in how lawyers are being paid? Are they not being paid for their time? Are they not being assigned to these cases quickly enough? Are defendants having access to applications for appointed counsel at their magistrate hearings? There, There are a lot of different moving parts in a criminal case, and it's hard to know really point to what's causing this right now. Now it's time for our rapid fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? Ready. So I'm up first. The ACLU called for Harris County District Judge Michael McSpadden's ouster after he alleged that poor defendants sat too long in jail pretrial because they were listening to advice for Black Lives Matter. So, Scott, is that where they're getting their bad advice? Not at all. In fact, ironically, they're probably getting most of their bad advice from Michael McSpadden (laughs) is really the truth. Because we just talked about it in one of our earlier segments, how they aren't even getting attorneys at their bail hearing. So so it's just a magistrate judge and the prosecutor there. So, no, it's not Black Lives Matter that's the problem. It's Michael McSpadden and the judges that are keeping these folks in jail pretrial for lack of money bill. For decades, Tarrant County billed municipalities for jailing inmates before they were formally charged, resulting in most defendants being held in unregulated city jails. The new sheriff will now take inmates upon arrest free of charge, as happens in all of Texas' other 253 counties. Mandy, how should those municipalities feel about this? So I think the municipalities should feel, you know, gypped that they've been paying, you know, I, I don't know how much, but a substantial sum. For 30 years. (laughs) For 30 years. Unnecessarily. But, you know, I think more importantly, it's the problem is, you know, this is the taxpayer's issue. And, you know, you're robbing from Peter to pay Paul to warehouse people again in a pretrial setting. And it has them kept in unregulated jails, too. They're not subject to state regulation. Finally, Johnny Lindsay, one of the early Dallas DNA exonerees who fought for innocence reforms in Austin after he left prison, recently passed away. Scott, how will you remember him? Johnny Lindsay was one of the kindest, most gentle people I've ever met. He was one of the DNA exonerees who didn't forget the people who came after him and was down here in Austin 
Every single time there was ever an opportunity to tell his story and try and convince the legislature to enact reforms, he continued this right up until his health wouldn't allow him to any longer, and he was a, a real hero and an amazing figure. He'll, he'll definitely be missed. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, I'm Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo with the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. We'll be back next month with more and hopefully better news. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen.